0: Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. In this episode, we again reflect on our Sunday school curriculum and look at our comparative religion class. Participants are challenged to answer the questions we expect leaders of other religions to answer during the class field trips, and Rabbi Shalom discusses why we have a class that explores other religions as students prepare for confirmation at Kol Hadash.
1: Well, welcome back to Sunday School for Adults, where your kids get to see you go to class, which is always a good lesson for them, just in observing uh, the need for lifelong learning. Um, Today we're going to be talking about comparative Judaism and comparative religion, which is primarily covered in our ninth and 10th grade confirmation class, Uh, but we do also talk about it briefly in our uh, seventh grade uh, mitzvah class that meets with me um, as part of the Bar Mitzvah process. You may recall last year there was a survey done of American religious literacy, where they asked uh, a series of questions related to religious history and ideology and belief. Uh, questions like What religion was Maimonides? Correct answer Jewish. <laughs> but 40% of American Jews got that wrong. Um, uh, questions like um, Who was Jonathan Edwards, who was a uh, Protestant uh, preacher in the uh, colonial period in America? Um, which religions believe in re- reincarnation, uh, in which scripture is this story, that kind of thing. Um, and they found that the highest scoring group for religious literacy was, anyone remember? Atheists and agnostics. <laughs> they scored the best overall, um, shortly followed by Jews and Mormons. Those were the three best. Because you had to demonstrate knowledge not only about your own tradition, but also about other religious traditions. And often uh, what happens when you're in that either religious minority uh, position or an irreligious minority position, uh, you know what you don't believe, and you know what's going on around you as well as your own specific group. So while an evangelical Protestant, let's say, might have done fine on a question about the New Testament, They might not have done as well on the question about Maimonides, or about what actually is in the Quran, and not just what they've been told is in the Quran, or um, Buddhism, or Hinduism, and so on. So that was the trick, Uh, not just knowing what you believe, but knowing what others believe. Now, the reason why we make comparative Judaism and comparative religion our confirmation curriculum is that um, we want people to (coughs) be able to answer what sounds like a simple question, which is, What do you believe? What do you believe? Well, at first, you think, oh, well, that's easy. But then when you start to think about, well, I belong to this institution, but do I really believe everything that it says? Or I was raised this way, but I don't know that I agree with everything. And well, I say doing uh, holidays is important, but I never go to synagogue or to church, well, how can we figure out what we actually believe? There are a couple of ways you can do it. There's evidence that you can look for. Look at what kind of books you own. You know, check out your library. If, if you were an archaeologist exploring a community like the Dead Sea Scrolls community, you would look at who, who do they put in their library because that's emblematic of what was important to them to keep, not just to take out of the library and send back or to borrow from a friend and return. What do they buy and what do they put on their shelves? You can see what you say you believe, and often it's a, that's close to what you believe, but it may not be identical. You always have to check other details, too, like what do you do? You know, you'll see people who say, uh, charity is very important to me. But they give almost no money and they spend almost no time volunteering. So I think saying charity is important is important to them. <laughs> but maybe charity itself isn't as important to them. So you look at what people actually do, what you actually do, in terms of what you really believe. And... Ultimately, what kind of community do you join? That will say something about what you believe or about your priorities. So you will get people who personally might be humanist, atheist, agnostic, questioning, who will join a more traditional religious community. And you might say, why? Well, that doesn't reflect what they believe. But what it does reflect is what's important to them. Because in this case, connection with the community or a sense of continuity, a sense of tradition is more important than living in a community that absolutely agrees with their values. And that's a value too, that sense of continuity and tradition, a sense of community. So you'll get people who uh, live in small towns who join the local reform temple because that's what's there. If there's a Jewish institution, they themselves might be more inclined to something more secular, but they want that sense of community. And so in the priority question, that's where it settles. Now, part of exploring this question of what do you believe, or what do I believe, if you're asking yourself, is looking at what other answers are out there. What our friends and neighbors believe. Or even not our friends. Other options that human beings have created in looking at the human experience. Because in the end, religion is a way of approaching the human experience. What does it mean? What happens after I die? What am I supposed to do? All those big questions are questions that religion answers. And if humanistic Judaism or humanistic philosophy is going to really be worth anything, it has to also have answers to those questions. It has to address those human needs. And so that's what humanistic Judaism also tries to do. But one of the ways you can find out what those questions are and find out what our answers are is to look at other answers to those same questions. It's as if you had only tasted vanilla ice cream all your life. Now you need to taste the other flavors and you may come back to vanilla, that's fine. But to have only had vanilla and to say, I'm only going to uh, eat vanilla and read vanilla and learn about vanilla, is not to expose you to all the wide varieties that are out there to make the choice of vanilla that much more important and relevant and meaningful, and your ness won't be challenged in the future by all these other choices because you've integrated the idea of choice into what you have chosen. And it's helpful to know what you don't believe. That's part of that choice-making. Now, in our seventh grade class, our students are going through the bar mitzvah mill, or the gauntlet, you know, that that happens in the North Shore area if they're living in these suburbs. Uh, they may be going to as many as uh, 40 or 50 uh, services a year, depending on how many the parents will allow them to go to. <laughs> um, and uh, it's, uh, it's a challenging process, but they need to know in some ways to be oriented to what they're going to see. And so we talk a little bit more about comparative Judaism than other religious uh, groups. Um, we talk about what kind of symbols they'll see, what kind of texts are going to be read in the services, we look at the traditional Shema, the traditional Kaddish, uh, some of the traditional belief systems, um, even going into some of the basic ideas of orthodoxy, even if they may not go to an orthodox bar or bat mitzvah, uh, to understand a little bit about uh, what halakha, what Jewish law is, and how it's interpreted in more traditional settings, why there would be a woman's section, or why women wouldn't have bat mitzvahs in an orthodox setting, and so on. So. They should just be literate and know what's going on as they go to these experiences and get a sort of big picture idea of what these uh, religious approaches to life are. And we do some philosophy discussions. Um, So we had a discussion just a few weeks ago on um, what are you in charge of in your life and what are you not in charge of in your life at, at your current age. And so some things they are in charge of are what music they listen to up to a point, uh, what movies they see, up to a point, who their friends are, up to a point. You know, they have some limitations there. And I said, imagine forward to when you're 18 or 21 or 25 or whenever adulthood is supposed to start nowadays. Um, what will you be free to do then? Well, then they have a lot more freedom in terms of what they eat, where they live, how they work. What about when you were five? What were things you didn't control then that you control now? Well, what you dress, what you wear? They had, when they were five, someone else picked out their clothes in most cases. Uh, so the point of that exercise uh, where you sort of tie it all together is to say, well, part of our approach to life is that you're in charge of your life. You're growing into being in charge of your life, and that will include what you eat and what you wear and what you believe and how you live and your values. Um, and that, so in, in terms of ritual clothing, in terms of dietary laws, that's where the, the translation comes in, that they're free to choose what they choose to do. Okay. Uh, So that's what we do in the seventh grade class, but the the core study of comparative religion uh, takes place in uh, the confirmation class, which is ninth and tenth grade, and it used to be that we would run one year of comparative Judaism and one year of comparative others, other religions, but we realized that it made a lot more sense to divide it differently because when you're comparing Judaism and other religions, we often think of it in the silo model. There's... Orthodox, conservative reform, humanistic, reconstructionist, they're all in one silo, and it only makes sense to relate to the Jewish Jewish silo, and then there's the Christian silo, and then there's the Muslim silo, and then there's the Hindu silo. But actually, when you look at beliefs, lifestyle, practices, values, there's often a lot more similarity horizontally. So if you take Orthodox Jews and fundamentalist Christians and the Catholic Church, well, those all have a lot in common, and they're more traditionalist religions and then when you look at reform judaism and liberal protestantism and unitarianism and baha'i well those all seem to have a lot in common on the more liberal end of the spectrum the more reform changing modifying end of the spectrum so in the end we we reordered the curriculum so that we had one year of the orthodox or traditionalist subjects and one year of the reform or changing liberal uh, progressive versions of religion now the the places that they don't visit in their field trips, and they do a lot of field trips in, in the 10th grade and ninth grade class, uh, the places they don't visit are mainstream reformer, or conservative uh, synagogues. Because the theory is they've just gotten through the bar mitzvah mill, they know what those are like. They've been to a lot of those services, and so they talk about it, but they don't have to make a special field trip to those institutions. So in the Orthodox or traditionalist year, what do they visit? They visit Holy Cross Catholic Church, they have a chance to see a Catholic service and talk to a priest and they always talk with the clergy after the they see a service and then they have a discussion with the clergy person to ask a series of questions I'll talk about in a moment. So first they visit a Catholic church, they also visit an Orthodox Jewish service. Uh, fortunately there's one in Highland Park and they run services every day so they can go to the daily, Saturday, uh, daily Sunday service. Um, they go to a uh, Muslim service at a mosque, they go to a beautiful Hindu temple that, unfortunately, is way out in Bartlett, so it's a it's a long day, but it's worth it to uh, experience the service. And they go to Willow Creek, which is uh, one of these evangelical mega churches with uh, big screen TVs and break dancers and the whole show. Uh, but the idea is they're comparing, in some ways, apples to other fruit, <laughs> as opposed to you know fruits and vegetables. Um, so they're comparing like things. And they can talk about how Orthodox Jews have similarities to traditionalist Muslims, have similarities to fundamentalist Protestants, and so on. And uh, Hinduism doesn't quite fit because they tend to be a little bit more uh, flexible. But um, we want five and five in the field trip, so that's where <laughs> that's where it fits in. Uh, then on the reform end of things, they visit a uh, classical Reform Jewish service, which is on the more radical end of the Reform movement. Uh, they visit a Unitarian church, um, which is actually the Location where we often will do our bar and bar mitzvah services. So it's interesting to see it used for the purpose for which it was designed and not for us um, They'll go to a United Church of Christ, which is a very liberal Protestant uh, denomination very uh, gay welcoming for example uh, They'll go to the Baha'i temple in uh, Wilmet and then they also will go to a Zen Buddhist uh, uh, Meditation experience which is a very interesting challenge because on one hand Buddhism is flexible. On the other hand, no talking during—I mean and no talking <laughs> during that meditation process. Now, the other place that they visit is us. We require them to come to at least one of our adult high holiday services and ask similar questions that they'll ask at other field trips. Because after all, it's not just a question of learning what other people do, but also learning what we do and seeing how what we do fits into this big framework they're generating. They're basically generating a massive chart where they can compare them by asking similar questions. So here are some examples of the questions that they ask on their field trips. What is the human purpose on Earth? Why are we here? What does each tradition have to say about that? How does your religion define God or a higher power? What is God's relationship to humanity? Is there an afterlife? If so what is it it reincarnation is it heaven is it sort of a a drop goes back to the sea what's your what's your vision how much does God control and how much do human beings control that's an interesting question comparing the traditionalist versus the more liberal uh, branches how does one join this religion and do you market yourself to others this is the outreach conversion sign Where is there choice in this religion and where is there no choice? This is called the loose and the tight question. Where are the loose areas and where are the tight areas that you have to do this, otherwise you're out. What are the nonverbal images, icons, symbols that are important to the religion? Whether it's the cross or the talus, the prayer shawl or whatever the, the symbols might be. How is this religion different on paper than it is in practice? So if they're commanded to do X, how many people actually do that? Or is it you know the the joke phenomenon of some traditional temples where they park two blocks away and then walk th- that distance, so it looks like they've walked, but they don't you know they don't drive right next to it. What other texts or writings uh, are sacred in this religion, and how are they connected to services and other practices? Do you read it regularly as part of the service? or is it just in the background? Does it define personal practice or just the community? And who does the interpreting? Which is also very important. Are individuals able to read the source themselves or does it always have to be interpreted by the religious authorities? These are all very interesting questions. I mean, we can imagine some other questions we might want to ask like, why do bad things happen to good people? It's a classic religious question. And that would be interesting to see the different religions take on this. Again, you know, we have limited time and they have limited time on the field trip so we have to pick what are the most important ones. So that's, in its essence, in a nutshell, what we do in this class and what comes out of the class are the experiences they have in these locations, the material they read in advance to prepare them and then the uh, sort of debriefing afterward talking about what they saw and reviewing these uh, questions and answers. The ideas the students come up with when they ask questions of the other clergy people and their uh, answers. Um, So it really is a very dynamic and interactive class which is how this kind of subject should be. Uh, After all, if the goal in the end is to let them say at their confirmation, this is what I believe, or even this is what I believe now, not assuming it's going to be the same forever, uh, then they need to practice doing that. They need to learn how to do that, and they need to be free enough to do that. And so every four or five years, we get a student who gets up with their confirmation, and he, it's usually a he, he says, I'm not Jewish. I've decided that Judaism is a religion, and we are not religious, and so I'm not Jewish. And I always respond to them, that's part of a Jewish tradition. (laughs) Because there are lots of Jews over the centuries who have come to the same conclusion and said, I'm not Jewish. And they may change their mind over time. You know, people come back, they Spring comes and they want a Passover Seder or they have kids and they want a Hanukkah. I mean, those emotional resonances are there. Look, sometimes it's part of the family dynamic, sometimes it's part of teenage, you know, where can I rebel? They pick their spot that they're gonna push back. Um, But our approach needs to be to affirm the right to choose rather than to impose it on them because in the end, you can't force them to do anything. Right? The only thing they have to do in life is die. That will happen. But beyond that, I mean, there's a very limited amounts. You can force them once they're 16, 17, going to college. Far better, in my mind, to create an ethos of choice that so even if they choose to not stay connected, that's, in the end, their choice. But they know that this is a tradition that affirms choice. And if they choose to come back, they're welcome back. On the other hand, we get a large number of kids, and these are the most, I mean, these are also satisfying, where they say, you know what, I, I really like what we do here the best because I've looked at all the other choices, I've tasted the other flavors, so to speak, and uh, I find that what we do is meaningful, it's relevant, it's not too long, it's mostly in English, so I know what's going on, it has a lot of advantages, uh, and it seems to fit with the way I live my life. And honestly, that was the most meaningful thing for me growing up in a humanistic congregation, was the feeling that the way I lived every day, and what we did in the synagogue, or in a religious education setting, were exactly consonant. My parents went to adult services, and I saw that, so it meant that it was a community for the adults as well. Um, Their values at home were the same values we were learning about in the synagogue. We weren't doing one thing in one place and one thing somewhere else. And that consistency was very meaningful to me in terms of choosing my own identity. I didn't feel like I was picking one or the other, and I didn't feel like um, there was hypocrisy going on. Uh, Now, hypocrisy is a very strong word. I don't use it very often. Um, and the nicer term is inconsistency, that it just doesn't match. You know, we dress one way in one place and one way in a different place. We um, <clears throat> say we believe one thing one place, but we, it never comes up outside of that other setting. Well, that's inconsistency. Um, and in some ways we are similar to orthodoxy, and this is the irony. This is a good question for them to explore after they visit Orthodox Judaism. Because in Orthodoxy, what you do in the synagogue is what you do at home. Same thing here. Just what we do (laughs) is very different. So if you wear a kippah, a yarmulke, or a head covering in the synagogue, then you would wear it at home in an Orthodox setting. Uh, For many conservative or reformed Jews, they will wear it in the special setting for the special moment, but not necessarily every day. And our approach is if we don't wear it every day in our daily lives, in our daily values, then we don't need to wear it in uh, the Jewish setting. That's uh, you know, again, I, I call it inconsistency rather than hypocrisy, because um, people make their value choices, right? It's priorities. And uh, people who are comfortable in a reform or conservative synagogue are wonderfully welcome to be there. Uh, and that's one of the other lessons we try to give in our comparative religion study is that they are like flavors. Now, can you argue with someone that strawberry is better than vanilla? Well, you can try, but you're not going to get anywhere because it's a matter of taste. It's very hard, if not impossible, to argue about varieties of taste. You like one thing. I like something else. This tastes good to me. This tastes good to you. Wonderful. Well, if you treat, treat it like flavors of Judaism or flavors of religious belief or flavors of religious community, then that's the basis for tolerance. In the end, our sense of humanism is a belief in human knowledge, which has achieved quite a bit. We know quite a lot about the world. But it, in the end, is partial. I know some things, and you know some things. And maybe together, we can pool our intelligence and learn more and be more successful together and extend that to community and society. But in the end, what we know is limited, and we know that. So if we know that what we know is limited, then maybe we'll have the humility to not assume that we know everything. One of the keys to dialogue is a belief that you don't know everything. Because if you know everything, what's the point in listening to anyone else? If you assume you don't know everything, then there's a basis for conversation. You can learn something from other traditions, how they handle passages of life or celebrations of marriage or answering the big questions. Now, some of their answers you may not agree with, and some of our answers they may not agree with. That's fine. That's honest, that's telling the truth. It's not saying we all believe in the same things or we all have the same values. That kind of, that, that kind of like um, whitewashed dialogue is not really realistic. Rather, let's accept our real differences but understand that we have a basis to both differ and respect each other. You know, tolerance is a very complicated word because if, if you said I tolerate my neighbor, does that mean you like them? <laughs> I, I'm tolerating my neighbor means they're a jerk, and I'm not like uh, suing them. I mean, that's, I'm tolerating them. So religious tolerance is a very minimal level. What we like is religious respect. When I was uh, 16, I had a confirmation at the Birmingham Temple, and the subject of my confirmation speech, the title was, even an atheist is entitled to some happiness. And The theme was that, um, you know, uh, sort of the Rodney Dangerfield, we get no respect, but also, if we want to be respected, we have to respect other people also. You model the change you want to see in the world, says the bumper sticker. You want to have your perspective as a humanistic Jew or a humanistic Jewish community respected by others, then you have to model that respect in return by learning about them, by you can ask probing questions, after all, if I respect someone, I respect their intelligence, I respect their dignity, I respect their ability to fight back. I mean, I respect their strength and who they are. So if they ask me challenging questions, I'm happy to hear them because I know my answers. And I don't get upset at hearing those questions because I know what I believe and I feel comfortable in what I believe. I like vanilla, I like my taste. Well, if that's the case, then this exploration, visiting other congregations, uh, vi- talking to the other clergy, is not a threatening experience at all. Rather, it's a way of sharpening your own self-definition by comparing yourself to other people. Okay, uh, any general questions or comments or reactions to that? Please.
0: Well, when you're talking about the, the Bar bat, Mitzvah uh um, I don't think that we're going to experience that.
1: In you know, Arlington I'm Heights, right. I have
0: a little bit of concern that Shane's going to get a lot of Catholic, a lot of Lutheran from her classmates
2: and never experience a mm-hmm. conservative because she's
3: not in the North Shore. And I'm wondering
0: if we look at our class dynamics, that we look at the curriculum as well, mm-hmm. and see where families are coming from because, I look at the kindergarten class, and we've got Bernie, we've got you know, Libertyville, Libertyville, mm-hmm.
1: we've got Wisconsin. Yeah, and, you know, maybe that that needs to be looked at as well. Mm-hmm. We, we to add to that. that, well, Don, we've had other students from less Jewish areas before. We
4: have, and you know, it's always balanced out because, as Rabbi Adam pointed out, they do go to a reformed congregation. They go to the Sinai Congregation in the city, which is more classical Reform and has a Sunday service. Um, so they are getting that. Um, it's, I think as it's always a balancing act, and, right. and while we're not ignoring Reform Judaism, and they're also talking about it in classes, um, you know, I think if we don't want to spend too much time visiting Reform and conservative synagogues because then we would have to cut something else. Right. So I think I'm comfortable with the fact that they do go to a Reform congregation, um, and they spend a lot of time talking about it. And the other thing is, I mean, it will vary widely by family dynamic. You may have a family that's living in an area where their kids are going to school with not a lot of Jewish kids, but they're going to be going to services through family members, through cousins and things like that. So every family is going to have a different different experience of that. But I think the combination of visiting a variety and talking about it, which Mm -hmm. is just as valuable, if not more so, there's a good balance being said, I
1: think. And and I'll mention one other thing, that is education doesn't stop at the classroom, right? (laughs) If this is education into who they are and who they want to be, then parental involvement is fantastic. I mean, at a certain point when they're teenagers, they don't want you there, <laughs> that's, that's the dynamic too. But, um, you know, if if you feel that there's a particular institution that you went to that was very interesting or uh, that you want them to see what's in their neighborhood, there are lots of Sundays we're not busy. There are other days of the week and Saturdays that may have uh, opportunities to do that, certainly to see a, a traditional conservative tourist service, you'd have to go on a Saturday morning to do that. Well then uh, absolutely that's a possibility. I mean, that was the other variable in seeing reform and conservative services. They tend not to run them on Sundays. The classical reform service at Sinai in the city runs on Sunday. They also run Shabbat services, but they do run a Sunday service, as part of their, their congregational tradition, but most reform and conservative synagogues are not running things on Sunday. So they'd have to come a different day of the week and that's more challenging too. Uh, but certainly don't feel like they're limited to what we have on the uh, the field trip list. Different
5: kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. Humanistic Judaism you know, certainly is considered in the progressive yes. realm, and so when you're thinking about ice cream and flavors, you know we're very much open to different kinds of flavors and encouraging. But but when our kids talk to people of more from more traditional backgrounds, they're coming kind of from a very different perspective, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of no, it's vanilla ice cream or nothing? And do you talk at all about those kinds of conversations, negotiating those kinds of
4: relationships?
1: We do in the seventh grade class, um, we do an exercise I call humanistic Jewish uh, self-defense, which does not involve physical contact, I mean it's a verbal uh, conversation. So we look at some of the the challenging questions that they might get and how can they answer them. And we talk about things like don't get mad, (laughs) because when you're in a discussion, you get mad, you lose. If you sound calm and reasonable, you win. not uh, getting personal in those discussions. You know, I mean, some of this is just conflict resolution uh, basics, Um, but also having the tools and the vocabulary and the information to be able to answer these kind of uh, questions and challenges. Uh, There is a short essay in the back of the Youth Education Handbook um, that uh, is also on the website uh, called uh, Dealing with the God Question. It's an article I wrote, must be seven, eight years ago now. Um, where I looked at some of the, again, those challenging questions that they might get and gave you an idea of answers that might apply to a, you know, a five-year-old to a 10-year-old or a 10-year-old to a 15-year-old in different uh, windows. Um, things like, uh, do we believe in a God or uh, do we pray? So and so said, if I don't believe in this, I'm going to hell after I die. You know, how to answer those questions for the kids, again, I didn't want it to become, and I said this in the preface of the article, I don't want this to become our catechism, like this is the answer to this question, and I don't want it to be your catechism as a parent, like you, as a parent, your kid asks you a question, so you let me get out the book, and you read the paragraph, to them. that's not the point at all. But it was uh, an attempt to try and give you vocabulary or ways to approach these answers that, uh, that address those needs. So that's another resource that's uh, possible if the kid has had the kind of encounter with other kids uh, to be able to answer in a way that uh, that is consistent with what we do.
4: I'd like to also add that this comes up in their Sunday school classrooms. Um, and so, you know, teachers are not shutting down kids' questions when they don't conform to whatever the lesson plan was for today. And a lot of times these things will come up, you know, someone went to somebody else's bar mitzvah service, even if they're younger and they have things to talk about. And Mark Mark's fourth and fifth grade curriculum has a, a little comparative Judaism segment in it. Um, and so these things come up and they get dealt with in the course of class and the teachers are also, in all of the grades, guiding kids towards how you have respective dialogue. Because even within a classroom, sometimes they're yeah. not always respective of each other. Um, and so that's part of what happens in the classroom dialogue as well in all the grades. Right.
1: Any other general questions or comments? Yeah, you know, I'll point out one other uh, example of this how it comes up in an unexpected way. I was teaching a class, uh, this was in Michigan now, probably 10 years ago, uh, on um, the history of the state of Israel. That was the, the uh, subject. And we're talking about the kibbutz movement, I think. And then all of a sudden, one of the students who was relatively new to the class said, wait a minute, do people believe in God or not? <laughs> it just, like certain dots had connected on something and then all of a sudden, what? <laughs> so, she had this, so she had this question right away. And the other kids in the class answered, and I was thrilled at their answer. Their answer was, well, actually, it doesn't really matter whether you do or not for us. We have a more positive focus on what we can do and what we can affect in the world and what we can know. Um, that's, that's why we call it humanism. It's a positive focus on what we can do. And then whether there is or isn't anything out there is in some ways separate from what we can do. And I said, pass, A, you know, <laughs> fantastic. Um, you know, and these were kids that had been through the school for many years. We hadn't really covered this uh, specifically that I recalled as a, as a major curriculum topic for multiple weeks, but they got it out of the ethos of what the community did. And that was really uh, exciting to see. Um, and that's, again, a very, a very tolerant response to that question. It's not a no. It's not a what kind of idiot are you, or, you know, the kind of uh, angry, flaming, uh, radical response. Uh, instead, it's a reasoned, positive, uh, self-assured, uh, direction. I was uh, having a conversation with a professor at the Georgetown this week, um, who's written a book recently on how to live as a secular person, and um, he said that the, these debates that go on between the flaming radical, you're all wrong, uh, anti-religious perspective and the moderate, let's all get along, let's th- you'd be more conciliatory, and those debates have gone for 150 years in the secular free thought atheist world because you get the same dynamic of the person leaving a traditional religion who is just as fanatic in the opposite direction. And you get the person who may have been even raised in a secular setting or raised in a more tolerant setting who doesn't feel the need to blow up bridges as they're emancipating, let's say, from a traditionalist perspective. Um, I, uh, I did a survey, an online survey recently that was actually in the weekly email uh, a student at the ne- University of Nebraska was doing a survey on people who identify as humanists, atheists, agnostic, whatever. Um, but one of the questions jumped out at me as an example of how there, there's a, a missing link here. The question was, what was your coming out experience as a, a non-theist? It was good, my parents accepted me. It was bad, my parents didn't accept me. I never had a coming out experience because I never told anyone. Those were the choices. And I said, well, (laughs) none of those apply to me. I mean, if anything, I'd have have to have a coming out being religious experience to my secular parents. And uh, and I realized that that was just a a hole in what he understood as this population, Uh, that a second generation person who is not doing the breaking away has a very different dynamic. And the kind of community they create and the kind of message they present, I think is going to be a more positive one. Because they don't have, they're not fighting the demons of the past in the same way. So my father, who was raised in an Orthodox setting, um, has some very anti-religious edges to him, and um, I'm a little more sedate about those kind of things because it's not personal for me. Uh, I was at a dinner with the, with our family in New York once, and I mentioned I had been studying the Jews of Spain, and so my uncle, my father's brother, said. Oh, so you learned about how they committed all these sins and that's why they were expelled from Spain? <laughs> and I could see my father like, you know, like the volcano sort of getting ready to, and I jumped in and I said, well actually we're studying just more uh, economic and political factors, we don't get into the theology as much, and he said, okay, you understood. And as we were walking home, my dad said, I saw how you did that, and I see that there was, there was nothing to be gained by the head on assault, so you redirect and move on. And, uh, but again, it wasn't as personal for me because it's my uncle I see once in a while, not my brother that I have to wrestle with. So uh, that I think gives us a little bit more of a grounded, uh, calm response to these kind of challenges. Any other questions? So what I thought might be interesting is to go through these field trip questions and um, see what our answers might be. Um, or we can also look at which of the uh, groups that they visit and what's missing, what other options might be out there that would be interesting for them to look at. Um, so let's do the second one first. So in the traditionalist camp, they look at a Catholic church, an Orthodox Jewish synagogue, a Muslim uh, mosque, the Willow Creek uh, Evangelical Protestant church and the Hindu mandat. Um Any other traditionalist groups that might be interesting to explore?
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Any others? You don't
5: do Mormon,
1: Mormon no, that's another possibility. You
4: can't go visit them. That's right. Because Greek if you're God not Mormon, you can't get into the church. That's right. Really? So church? they do talk about it, but they they cannot go visit a Mormon
1: institution. Right. In Salt Lake City, you go to the... Well, in the tour on the tour right.
4: the the a tour. Area. Right, you can't go see right. a service if you're not a right. Mormon Right. Uh, Howard mentioned Greek
1: Orthodox, yeah. I think
4: it's all
1: you can. the Eastern Orthodox Church. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that covers a huge swath of the world, and uh, it's not Catholic, <laughs> very emphatically not Catholic, and often much, uh, even more traditionalist than the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church had their Vatican II Council, where they modified the language of the liturgy, and they stopped blaming the Jews for killing Jesus. The Eastern Orthodox Church has not done that yet, <laughs> so they have a ways to go. Theoretically, you could subdivide Muslim into Shiite and Sunni, and uh, you know have a couple of us there. Baptist is another. I mean, you could have to you have to pick which flavor of uh, traditionalist Protestant, right? (laughs) Again, probably can't go to a service. Uh, You have to be uh, you have to worry if they welcome you into that service. (laughs) Yes, come in. Yes, okay. um, And on the liberal end. Um, on the reform side, uh, we have Reform Judaism, which is a more classical reform, the sort of a more English style reform, uh, Unitarian, uh, United Church of Christ, liberal Protestant, uh, Bahai, and Zen Buddhist. Did you say Methodist? No, it didn't. Don't do Methodist. It's again in picking liberal Protestant. The subtleties between United Church of Christ and Methodist is, is started. Yes, and there's different there's a schism in the Lutheran church and which one and yes.
4: And also David Hirsch, the teacher, has chosen specific institutions sometimes because he has very good relationships with the clergy there. Like he knows that there are clergy that are good at talking to teenagers and that are very welcoming for outside groups to come. And in other places, you know that may not be the case. So that's also a determining factor in how he chooses where we are going
1: to go. And geography. And
4: geography, right?
1: You know, I mean, he could take him to the Korean Methodist Church, but my my, my guess is that the the after conversation might not be as successful, let alone the service. Um, and again, you know, you don't want to travel too far. The, the Chicago Sinai in the city is the only example of that uh, in the area, but. Um, You know, we have uh, in Highland Park is the Orthodox Jewish setting, and uh, the Holy Cross churches in Deerfield. So it's uh, easier just to do it that uh, that close, more closely. Now, one option we don't do in the Reform category is general humanist, that is non-ethnic, sort of uh, ethical culture style, um, uh, where they believe in humanism and humanistic values but don't have any ethnic or cultural uh, connections uh, or religious holidays. Whereas Unitarians, there may be some humanists in a Unitarian church, but it's oriented as a church around Christianity, loosely configured.
3: Where
0: do you put Reconstruction?
1: Reconstructionists is an interesting case because they are theologically liberal, but their practice is more traditional. Um, So if you read through a service, it would feel, not in, not 100%, but probably 90% like a conservative service. But if you read their translations, or the footnotes, or the essays, or the philosophy, they would sound a lot more like us. But they're committed, again, in that, that priorities. Their priority is that tradition, the connection with the past, and so they are focused on the traditional liturgy and traditional ritual practices. Uh, even if the belief system is very different, they found a way to. Uh, to bridge the two. Yeah, we don't do reconstructionists also, which we could, um, but that's again, you know, priorities. Any other liberal alternatives might be worth exploring? Mm-hmm. So what are our answers to these key questions? Let's go through them. What is the human purpose on earth? Why are we here? You have to try and answer before I, <laughs> okay, so that's how did we get here? Okay. That's part of the question, but you know there may be some lessons out of that. I mean, if the only lesson of, uh, were evolution, then we would say then our goal on life is to propagate our genes. <laughs> we are here to promote our genome, and so there are certain consequences. I mean, we have a choice to decide why we're here. Oh, okay. <laughs> So it's not just evolution; it's a factor, right. but uh, it's not the only value. You know, if you uh, did, you see the movie um, "The Evolution of Lying" or "The Invention yeah. of the yeah. Invention yeah. of yeah. Lying," yeah. the invention yeah. of yeah. lying. Yeah. Um, that's it's a very interesting movie because the conceit of the movie is that were it not for lying to ourselves, we would be very explicit about the fact that we only marry for genetic advantage.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's sort of the the premise of the movie. Um, part of it, but in any case, uh, evolution's a factor for sure. Um, why are we here? Well, it's okay to say I don't know to some or of these questions, no or maybe it's a it's a question that we want an answer to, but there is no answer to. There's
3: multiple
1: answers. Or well, all right, there may be multiple answers, but if there's multiple answers, then there's no one answer. Right. So um, it's sort of like saying, you know, why was I in this car crash? What was the cosmic purpose to me being in this car, not how did I, I know how I got in a car crash. Why did I have to have this car crash? Sometimes it's a question without an answer. I mean, I don't want to give you the answer of, well, you're a bad driver. I mean, there may be a factor, <laughs> but it's not a cosmic, it's the how, That's not the why. I don't want to say because you're a bad person or because you did bad things. You know, that's often a, Religious response to bad things happening, well, you must have done something wrong. This is a punishment of some kind. Maybe it's a test of some kind. Maybe it's a purgation, a, you know you're you're purging your sins from something else. But in the end, those answers aren't satisfying for us. So it's a mystery you'll sometimes hear. But in the end, maybe why is the wrong question? it's It's a question that we have emotionally, but it's not the one that's going to be most productive answering. And maybe the better way to think of it is, not why did I have this crash, but how can I make the best of this situation? What can I learn out of this? What can I do better? What can I teach other people? Um, My wife likes watching uh, Extreme Makeover Home Edition, and there was an episode, uh, I think last week or the week before, about a family whose daughter uh, died in a car accident when she was texting while driving. Uh, And she also wasn't wearing her seatbelt. Oh, the car rolled over and she was thrown out and whatever. So what they've done is they've sort of reoriented their life to making sure people know, not to text and drive and taking the message to high schools and trying to uh, spread that word around. So that's a case of you know, asking why did she have to die? There's no why that she had to die, but this is taking the reality and making the best out of it. So some might say, well, she, maybe she died for this purpose. Well, that she didn't choose to die for that purpose. But I made that purpose out of her death. So we make purpose out of life. It's not that life gives us a purpose. We are creating the purpose ourselves out of the raw materials. So for some people, their purpose is in service to other people. For some people, their purpose is in self-actualization, developing themselves, uh, increasing their own strength and power. Um, But there is no one meaning to life. There are meanings, there are things we find meaning in, put it that way. Okay. Second question, what is God or the higher power and what is God's relationship to humanity? So if you were the clergy person and a confirmation class were visiting you, how would you answer that question? This is why I get paid the big bucks. (laughs) 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 The question is, what is God in this tradition? or a higher power? Um, what is God's relationship to humanity? I
3: have the kids discussed this before, so that you know sort of what their answers are. Yes.
1: Yeah, they talk about, I mean, they talk about humanistic Judaism as well uh, in looking at these questions, uh, going elsewhere. met uh, personally. Oh, them personally? Well, we try not to put them on the spot too early. That is, at the beginning of the year, they're starting this process. Um, and if it's the second year, they've forgotten half of it over the summer anyway, so we have to remind them. Uh, but they do get into these questions uh, in a personal sense as we do our high holiday services, and they, I, I visit with the class, and they ask me these kind of questions. Uh, and also, by the end of the year, when they're doing their summaries and thinking about what they're going to present as their confirmation speeches, that's also part of the, of the explore, exploration process. The answer you
4: gave for the Birmingham
1: right. right. Right, right. I mean, certainly God is a character in the stories, right? I mean, there, there are plenty of Jewish stories where God is a, a major character. Uh, it's an expression of human aspirations. We would like there to be justice in the world. We would like there to be someone to take care of the sick and heal and uh, and reward the righteous. We we want that to be the case. So it's, it's an expression of human desire. Well, it may not happen without us doing it, but the desire is what's being expressed. and the one thing that we wanna make sure is that you don't expect the higher power to do it for you. That is, you'll get people who are members of humanistic congregations who do believe in some supernatural reality out there, but not any reality that, I mean, here's the traditional things of God, that answers prayers, that intervenes in the world, that writes a Torah, that cares what you eat, that knows what you've, if you've been sleeping, that knows if you're awake, that knows if you've been bad or good. Anyway, so those traditional attributes of a god, uh, those we don't focus on. But if there's something out there beyond the world that may have flipped the first domino, that doesn't change the reality that we have to make choices. We have to make justice in the world. We all those desires. So when people say, "What do you pray for?" Um, Our answer is. We do. If you don't pray, what do you do? We do. We act. We have our desires, and then we try to make them real in the world.
2: Also, well, like you said, uh, you the higher power sets your guidelines and everything, but it's up to us to follow whatever word or whatever well, may be to
1: But even then, wait,
2: but that's the thing. It's like, well, you can. Trying to teach you or, or, or whatever, and long, 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 you're making all these mistakes. But I'm not here to fix it for you. I can only
1: maybe direct you. Well, that's a more liberal theology perspective, and ours. I mean, ours really is that uh, there is no reliable communication uh, from beyond uh, that right. can tell us what to do or not to do. I mean, it's but even it, what reading, I mean. well, but that's the point. Who wrote what you read? Right. <laughs> Who interprets what you read? It's always coming from somewhere with a particular perspective.
2: Mm-hmm like the first questions you just asked. Everything is speculative, everything's up to everyone's interpretation. It doesn't matter. Like he's a vanilla, strawberry, chocolate, whatever. Yes. Or even or interpreting what uh, you may read in a poem or whatever. It's going to be different to someone else and maybe yourself.
1: Right, but it isn't anarchy. That, that is, right. isn't that you know? everybody can do whatever they want at any time, anywhere. No, we have to live together. So we have rules that help us work. And the rules that help us work well are the ones that have survived and show up in many different cultures. You know, Love your neighbor as yourself mm-hmm. is in the Torah, but it's in Buddhism, and it's in Confucianism, and it's in uh, uh, Islam. It's in a lot of different traditions. Right. Well, you're
2: seeing all these, or hearing all these
1: Yes, and so again, this is where we come back to uh, what I said near the outset: that for us, the religious phenomenon of humanity are expressions of the human experience, responses to what human beings do and need and learn. Uh, So that's how we can learn from other religions, even if we don't believe in how they say it came to be. So if uh, Christianity believes that Jesus said X, Y, and Z, whether or not he said them or not, Uh, we can take those principles as expressions of, again, human desire, human need, human ethics, (coughs) and we can choose to follow them or not. Uh, But even more importantly, we can evaluate them, not based on whether the God said them or not, which means you can't let them go, but based on how they affect people. So, I mean, right now the conservative Jewish movement is really being torn over the passage in Leviticus 18 about homosexuality. Leviticus 19 is very nice. It has love your neighbor as yourself and don't oppress the poor and all this nice stuff. Leviticus 18 is terrible because it has a list of what sexual relations are permitted and forbidden and who should be stoned to death. In particular, a man who lies with a man is with a woman, she'll be stoned to death. Gone. Now, liberal religions can say, well, we don't choose to follow that particular rule. But religions that take following the letter of the law very seriously, Orthodox Judaism, even conservative Judaism to some extent, uh, fundamentalist Christianity, have, they just can't let it go because it's in the book. And so they, I mean, in the conservative movement right now, they went through this long process to decide whether they would ordain rabbis who were gay. And in the end, the resolution was, yes, we can, ord- they, they, they came out with three decisions from their law committee. Two said they couldn't ordain them and one said they could, which means that Any community can choose whether they want to or not. Um, And even the one that said they could said that homosexual sex was still a problem. That they could be gay, but doing gay was a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot. (laughs) Yeah, sign me up for that. All right, so. um, But but they're, they're they're just torn on this because they're committed to interpreting the letter of the law, but following the letter of the law to some degree. And uh, when you take it as an expression of human desire, human culture, human evolution in terms of morals, not just biologically, um, then you can leave it behind because this isn't relevant to our modern day and age and values and acceptance and so on. Well, that's a flexibility that we have that others might not have. So it's what, what is your standard for evaluating? This is like question four, how much does God control? How much do humans control? Well. We get to choose our values, and they can—they can be flexible. They can evolve. They draw on the wealth of human experience, but they're not bound, as in a revelation, to what was said before. Uh, the third question: Is there an afterlife, and what is it? Are we answering for
3: ourselves, or are we well? For, how do they have problem? I mean, as I'm listening to the do they have the clergy have any difficulties with these questions coming with it? I mean, certain certain of them, obviously, yes, they're, they're, this is the answer. Mm-hmm. Others, I would think, would be a little harder to explain to a group of teenagers. The yeah. response
4: I've been hearing, because yeah, my own child is going to be confirmed this year, is that some of them answer the question, and some of them dance around the And she said, a lot of the time, they really don't get a very clear, straight answer from the clergy. Especially, uh, obviously, in the more liberal branch of religion, because they're trying to make it more open-ended. And she, Eva was saying that when they went to Holy Cross and they had questions about communion, Mm -hmm. because a lot of our kids had a hard time getting their brains around communion. Um, But she says she really appreciated that the priest was very clear. You know, if you do not believe, blah blah blah, then you are not Catholic and you shouldn't take communion. And that's, and he said, and we know that a lot of people do for the ritual, but really, if you don't really believe this, then you're not Catholic. And she said that was refreshing, <laughs> <laughs> because because he said this is really what the church says, and you know you can deviate from it, but this is this is what it is. So I
1: the, oh my <laughs> <sugar>. <laughs> the,
0: the.
4: The entire day or how long are they
1: there? Usually a couple for hours. Service, a and a discussion, okay. yeah. service and then talking with the clergy afterwards, okay. and. You know, again, most of the services are not three hours long, right. so it's uh, it's a reasonable time. frame. It's it's parallel to a Sunday school day. Sometimes it's yeah. a little bit like You'll going out to the... Start,
4: right. Or if
1: it's a long schlep out to Bartlett right. for the Hindu... So it's a little bit longer. So, trip. I'm sorry.
4: I'm That's fine. getting off the path,
5: but do the, do the other synagogues or temples or churches kind of do what you
1: do and go to others? Some do. Okay. Uh, I know that there are at least a couple of other uh, liberal... Uh, synagogues in the area that do a comparative religion, comparative Judaism class. I mean, Dawn and I have spoken at a couple of them, okay. talking about humanistic Judaism. And um, you think that
4: was unique for here, or is that they?
1: I don't know if they do the field trips. I know they learn about so they them.
4: They might not go on as many field trips, okay. well. right? It, it varies, widely. or
1: as broadly, you know, as right. as widely varied as we do. Right. Um, I mean, again, you know, their objective, honestly, is. And David was in a, a, a class of other teachers of this kind of uh, material. And he said, I want kids to choose for themselves. And they say, and the other teacher said, no, you don't. Because <laughs> they might choose not what you're teaching them. And he said, that's what I'm teaching oh, them. A lot of places don't want right. them to have the other children. Right. Right. Yeah. It's more of like, educational rather than <laughs>
4: actually making a difference. borderline brainwashing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't
1: know. Yeah. I, uh,
5: I,
3: went to, I
1: went
5: to a Jewish day school and the kids asked me almost those identical questions they were amazing It was an eighth grade class and they just they got it i mean i just very simply answered in a very straightforward way and they said okay so you don't believe that there's an afterlife and then they started asking well how how do you live with that how mm-hmm. you know and it was very very illuminating and the kids get this stuff i mean they they know the question after the question and, <laughs> and the questions asked it. are fantastic yeah, they're
0: I would, I would argue that we do believe in an afterlife which is when we're gone who remembers mm-hmm. us and the things that we did what impact did they have
1: well i would Calling it an afterlife, maybe it's more accurate as an after impression, an after effect, right. After ripples, right? You know, where the stone in the water and the ripples are still there. Um, we
5: do live on in certain ways. Right,
1: but our, as far as we know, our consciousness is based on the electrical signals in our brain. And when we die, those signals stop. So our consciousness, as far as we know, uh, again, we don't know. But based on the evidence we've seen, it's unlikely. And uh, so then what that does is we ask other questions like how can you live on after your life in terms of memory and positive impact in the world, those kind of things. Uh, genetics certainly is part of that immortality. Um, but we also talk about how much imp- more important this life is when this is the only shot you get. You know, if you're gonna be reincarnated, well, you know, you may not put as much stock in this life. Uh, if, if you have-
0: uh, but you don't wanna be reincarnated.
1: As a worm. Right, <laughs> right. Um, But also, I mean, I found this even when it comes to death and loss. You know, people think that uh, heaven is the answer so that kids won't be sad. But the reality is, even if you do believe in a heaven, you are not going to see this person again in the rest of your known life. So you need to deal with that grief and that loss. That's important. That's part of the processing to get your feet under you. And in some ways, I mean, look, when somebody dies, you should be sad. <laughs> that you, Your body knows better than your brain does because you feel sad whether or not you believe it's going to happen again. You know, you're going to see them again or whatever else. Um, and uh, the sooner you come to grips with the reality of them being gone for the rest of your life, that we know, uh, the sooner you can learn to live with the new reality of them not being there. And so it doesn't, our approach doesn't stop grief, but you shouldn't. What it does is it finds a way for you to get your footing again after grief to learn to live your life with that reality. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, we've had experiences with the members of the congregation who have kids who are old enough to know what death is when they're going through that process, and they're still sad, but they, they get it. I mean, uh, you, you've mentioned a couple times Eva's experience with her grandmother dying? Yeah,
4: with my mother, and she was, I think, eight, nine. And I actually found that our approach was more comforting than the traditional one. And we had, I mean, you know, everybody was sad, but like you said, this was the reality, you move on, and and it was much easier to deal with, honestly, that way, and talking about the legacy of memory then, to, then suddenly, I mean, I've heard parents say, you know, if you if, if heaven is the answer to how you deal with grief for kids, that just leads to a whole barrage of other questions like, where is it, and what are they doing, and... Uh,
1: do they keep getting older?
4: Right, right, now will she remember me by the time I get up there? You know, and all this other stuff that then you're, then you're just making up answers because we don't know. Right, right. well... Th- Whereas I think the reality actually is more...
1: This is what gets this gets back to the um, the movie The Invention of Lying, where uh, his mother is dying. And she says, "I'm very scared, I'm very scared. And so he he's the only person in the world that can lie at this point. and so he makes up a story about an afterlife. Imagine. And, Imagine, and yeah. everyone gets a mansion in this guy. <laughs> and and everyone else wants tells more. Tell us more about the man. How do we get to the sky? We need to know. Uh, How many it's, bad
4: things can I do before I lose my mind? Right.
1: <laughs> anyway, so the, the, but the challenge is, you see, that this after this idea of an afterlife, we can't simply be dismissive. Again, you know, religions express human need. And so, if so many religions have come up with an afterlife, there's a human need that is a fear of my consciousness ending. And you can go back to the ancient Greeks, Epicurus, one of the first humanist philosophers. He said, before I was, I had no awareness of what was going on. After I'm gone, I'll have no awareness of what's going on. So I should enjoy where I, where I am now, and I won't worry about what happens next, because I didn't know what life was like before I was here. I won't know what life was like after I'm gone. But that answer wasn't enough. You know, If that answer was it, that would have been it but there's obviously something more going on, so we have to be open and responsive to that. Uh, another question, um, how does one join this religion, and do you mark it to other people? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're pretty flexible. Um, I mean, in terms of joining our community, uh, we don't even ask whether someone's Jewish or not, because if they wanna join the community and they know who we are, then wonderful. Um, if someone chooses to identify as Jewish, uh, our short version is Mazel Tov. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah welcome. Uh, I, I think it was Moshe Dayan who said, um, "Anyone who's crazy enough to want to be Jewish deserves it." <laughs> if you want to join this minority that's all that's well, has its own internal craziness and has all these people that don't like it and all the challenges, if you want to be part of this, wonderful. <laughs> I liked
0: Sherwin's ceremony where somebody was converting. Now you're Jewish.
1: <laughs> all right, snap. Well, basically our approach is if you self-identify, I mean, again, if you're teaching like an ethnic identity, how do you join an ethnic group? If our Jewishness is a cultural and ethnic identity, how do you become ethnic? You might pick a new name, you might marry someone from that group, you learn the language, you learn the foods, you learn the holidays, you join a community. Well, if you've taken those steps, then our approach is welcome. And we often will use language like adoption instead of conversion, because it's not like you've seen the light uh, in this case, it's you've joined the family. <coughs> and so you're part of the Jewish family. And honestly, even those people who have married Jews who themselves don't identify as Jewish are, in an extended sense, part of the Jewish family. I'm part of my wife's family. I sometimes think they're crazy. <laughs> she thinks my family is crazy. That's how it goes. You should say that with your mother. Alone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, she should know I say it when she's here or when she's not. Right. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: she say
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway, so the, the point is that I'm, we're part of both families, and so even the non-Jewish spouses of uh, Jews are part of the Jewish family broadly considered, and their kids are part of the Jewish family broadly considered, um, and that kind of an approach is much more open and welcoming. Uh, now, we haven't in the past gone out with street signs on the corner. You know, saying, you are part of the Jewish family, or trying to promote that in a very outgoing, aggressive way. What? We
4: give, give out pencils.
1: Yeah, we, we've, we've, we've marched in the parade and given out pencils. That's right. We've done a little bit of that. Uh, but we haven't done the sort of gorilla in your face, are you Jewish, marketing that the uh, Chabad Orthodox will do. Um, but you know, theoretically, it's a possibility. Uh, we could do that. The reason why we haven't, honestly, is we get sick of other people doing it to us. And our approach, I mean, with the internet, it's actually easy. you want to find us, you can find us. Although we're not in the phone book for some reason. But if you want, if you want to look on the internet, you can find us. Um, but we haven't historically done a lot of aggressive outreach uh, to convert people to this, um, because, uh, again, we don't like other people doing that to us. Um, where, are there, where is there choice in this religion, and where is there no choice? Well, choice we've talked a lot about. Where is there no choice?
0: That it, if somebody does believe that a higher power guides them, that it's important to communicate with said higher power, you don't really accept that as, as an option. That You do need to take responsibility for your actions and you can't,
1: Real well, AI I'll I'll qualify that. If they choose to believe that privately, fine. If they choose to mention it personally, if they insist the community follows that approach, that's where we'd part company. See, one of our challenges is we affirm people ch- making choices <laughs> even if their choices are beyond what we've defined as a humanistic Judaism. Reform Jews are free to choose what they choose and Orthodox Jews are free to choose what they choose. Right. But if you choose, I'll give you an example. If you believe that men and women need to be separate uh, by gender for a meaningful service, if you choose to attend our services knowing that we don't do that, that's up to you. We're, there's no inquisition going around checking what you think. But if you try to impose that value on our community, then that would be beyond the bounds of our community.
5: Well,
1: we right. But and
5: often
1: can't do it. Right. I mean, that, that wouldn't. That would. That would be a, one of those tight areas where there's no choice about it. There's one of the non-negotiable oh, you, you positions. You didn't
4: join the congregation. That's it, right. Would right. Just be, it would be a matter of your own personal comfort. We, right. we had conversations about that when the congregation that some of
3: which were pretty dynamic. Mm-hmm. And you really can't tell people how they could think. We, we, we're, even if we did all the surveys we wanted to find <laughs> out.
1: Even if we stopped you on the way into the High Holidays and made <laughs> you fill out a survey <laughs> right. to go inside. right? Exactly. I had a so, telephone
3: call that actually asked me this week on a telephone call that asked whether I believed in God and a whole bunch of. And people. do you
1: attend religious services? Right. See, I love those because
4: <laughs>
1: they'll say, you know, um, how often do you attend religious services? <laughs> All the time. <laughs> how often do you pray? Never.
3: <laughs> it had a whole bunch of, had politics and a bunch of other things that I was sort of surprised
2: when yeah Yeah,
5: yeah. You
3: know, okay. We often get
5: questions about. Um, so if you're so open and everything, then why can't why can't we sing um, theistic songs during services? Because you're open. And I got a question uh, from a Minnesota congregation recently. Somebody who came from Unitarianism. and says we get to sing all the religious songs there, and you know we need to talk a little bit about our distinctiveness. That. We the reason why there's a separate movement in Judaism called Hinduism Judaism is because we don't do theism in our communal practice.
1: Right. We sing what we believe, what we all believe, the values we all share. Right,
4: educationally, it's another
1: story. Right.
4: And this is the only place for people who feel that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that's my so, other answer is, yeah. you know, if there, there are lots of other places that you can go. For that. But if this is what you believe, this is it. Mm-hmm. And if this weren't here, I would be unaffiliated. And you know, everybody should have a home where they feel comfortable. And there can be there have to be lots of varieties of that so that people can feel comfortable. But you know, there are other people people who have other perspectives have other places to
1: go. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it's a very interesting uh, challenge for us um, in saying what you can and can't believe. Well, you can believe whatever you want, but what we do as a community is based on a certain set of principles. And if what you would require goes beyond those principles, then this might not be the best home for you. But in the end, you're we'll take your money. I mean, you're free. <laughs> you're free. <laughs> I mean, you're free to join. But uh, but in the end, uh, it's it's meaningful to you and. That's the other point that's uh, relevant, related to what Don said that what's meaningful to you is a reasonable standard. Yes? <laughs> Do you have a question?
2: I came here to get you. Okay. <laughs> Let's go see
1: okay. what you there. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs>
3: okay.
1: It a little short yeah, well, he grew up. <laughs> Okay, so um, I mean in the end I think that uh, this question of comparative religion does bring another question up about what we've chosen to do in the class. And that is why not spend our confirmation class exploring what humanistic Judaism is? Just spend the whole year on that, maybe one of the two years, Uh, or even both years because after all this is a lifetime process of learning. We have rabbinic students that study uh, very extensively for a long period of time. Um, why not just spend those two years talking about what we do believe? Time. <laughs> you run out of topics? Thank you.
4: <laughs> <laughs> you ever try and
3: express uh, that less is more actually? Degree? Mm-hmm. That part. wouldn't prepare them for the outside world because they're going to hear it. They're going to have conversations. They're just getting to the age where they're going to, they may think they're meeting more, mm-hmm. but they're gonna be more and more in the outside world. When they get into high school, it's a bigger environment. When they get into college, it's a different, and when they get out in the workplace, mm-hmm. and they need to have the tools to know what the others are thinking mm-hmm. in order to know what they, in order to make the choice of what you think.
1: And I'll also make the point that a number of our families come from mixed backgrounds, a uh, mixed religious heritage in the grandparents' uh, generation or even in their parents' generation, and so this is a bit of exploration of who they are and where their family comes from. Um, even as we don't make it a core part of the curriculum in every grade going all the way through, uh, but this is again giving them an opportunity to integrate who they are and how they've been raised with who their family is broadly considered or who their community is. I think it's
5: a
2: Mhm. Right. I mean, as far as encouraging the, the kids to see more than just what it, what I grew up in, mm-hmm. something like this for me was just I'm not saying it was taboo, but you know, um, but they have them more well-rounded, more educated about not just faiths, religions, and that, but just even the people and how they interact, maybe with their faith or, or cultures. That. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's incredible, and in and, you know, early teens like that, that's fantastic.
1: That's why I love the question, how is your religion different on paper than it is in practice, which again, some of the clergy might not want to answer because <laughs> they'd have to admit that we say kosher is very important, but most people don't do it, or we, uh, we say prayer uh, every day is important, but people only come twice a year to, you know, to, to Easter and, up. right, exactly. Uh, it's, it's, they're, they're twice a year in uh, Jewish services or twice a year at uh, Easter and Paz- uh, Easter and uh, Christmas. Um, so, you know, That's, that's again, that the reality of religion as a human phenomenon, not just a set of ideas and, uh, and yeah, principles. I mean,
5: it's also Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I think David also, he has
1: this communication with the teachers, he's uh, with the, the
5: clergy people. clergy people, right. They get the questions ahead of time. Yes, yes. So oh, okay. It's not like they're getting...
1: Well, I mean, they may, there may be follow-up questions. Like, the communion question isn't a specific question that's here, but it comes up in the context of, uh, of the visit. So uh, yes, but they do see the, the, the core questions that they're going to ask everybody, they, they do get an advance.
4: And many of these clergy are used to our coming every year. I <laughs> had to comment on something that Tom said that I thought was really interesting, that it's not just that we're introducing kids to these religions, but they're meeting these people that practice these religions. And, and often, because we see local groups, their friends are there. You know, they'll see people they know from school at services at Holy Cross or wherever. And that's interesting for them, too, because they often have, I know this has been the case in our family, follow-up conversations with those friends at school. Um, And one thing that I thought was very interesting is David doesn't tell our kids in advance, so they don't know before they get there. But the mosque in Northbrook was founded originally by Bosnian Muslims. So they're from a European background. And our kids get it into their head that all Muslims are Arabs. And so when they walk into this mosque in Northbrook and they see a wide variety of people, both in terms of look and dress and practice, they are at a mosque, so you see people of European ancestry, you see people of Arab ancestry. You know, it, it's a real mix. It's a very diverse community. And David doesn't tell them that going in, and they have, you know have their own preconceptions like everybody else does. That's a very interesting.
1: So experience. don't give it away.
4: Yeah, right, yeah don't <laughs> give it away. but you know that's part of it too is is
1: the people right any last uh, thoughts or comments well, I'm, I'm very pleased that we have this as part of our, our curriculum and practice uh, that uh, we want them to make their own choices uh, we we model the best approach to making those choices in what we do um, we hope that they will choose to identify as humanistic Jews going forward uh, but in the end, they're they're going to be choosing anyways, and so better to affirm the choice than to reject it and have them reject us. Uh, and again, if you model being open and accepting, then uh, that will uh, show them how to do it themselves.
0: This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.